out of the tree of life I just picked me a plum You came along and everything started into hum Still it's a real good bet The best is yet to come Happy Monday and welcome to the last Not Boring of 2020. It's been a wild year, obviously. Uh, I'm not going to be the first to say it, I won't be the last, but I might be the most optimistic because I think the best is yet to come. I've always been an optimist. It's how I'm wired. My brain has a very hard time visualizing the downsides and a very easy time visualizing the upsides. So when COVID hit and millions were losing their jobs, and I made the call to kill the company I had spent six months trying to start, I saw the potential bright spots. In April's Schumpeter's Gale, I wrote that mass startup layoffs would unlock talent and be the best thing that could have happened to many of the people on the list of people laid off and looking for new jobs. Many people were stuck in bullshit jobs at bloated companies that they couldn't or wouldn't leave because of inertia or comfort or because too much of their identity was tied up in it. COVID was a reset. It made the decision for them and freed them up to go start a company, do a job where they were truly valuable, or pursue a passion. It was hard, but ultimately good. In case that wasn't sunny enough, in May's Conjuring Senius, I wrote, when all is said and done, I believe that historians will look back at the coronavirus pandemic as the greatest catalyst for progress and creativity in human history. I believe that COVID would unlock creativity and progress and unlock a global form of communal genius by one, serving as a catalyzing global event for the internet generation, our World War II, two, uniting people around a common mission and shared experience, and three, demanding new tools, processes, and social norms for online collaborations. That's mostly come true. 11 months after the first COVID case in the US, we have multiple approved vaccines, legitimate companies hiring people from around the globe, a generation used to learning online, increased digital adoption and new channels for previously offline businesses, and new ways of collaborating that previously seemed impossible. We're more resilient, more anti-fragile than before. Many of the people on the April startup layoff lists have found new jobs at more future-proof companies or are working for themselves, building businesses, communities, and projects that no one can fire them from. Those who still have a day job now have the time to pursue that side thing they've been wanting to pursue and appreciate the power of self-reliance more than ever before. And for the types of companies that we talk about here at Not Boring, tech companies large and small, things have never been better. So today, to close out the year, let's look back at what's happened and ahead to what it might mean for the future. It's going to be a bit looser than a normal Not Boring, more letter than essay, but I want to cover three interrelated themes that together make me bullish on tech, company creation, and work. One, the markets are eating up technology. More demand for tech stocks means more innovation more quickly. SPACs may be a good thing, and IPOs are unleashing liquidity. Two, cloud companies. Entrepreneurs can build new types of highly differentiated companies with global talent and increasingly useful software at their fingertips. And three, the passion economy writ large. As software does more grunt work and employment becomes more liquid, people will pursue their passions. That will make them even more resilient the next time a crisis hits. Despite a pandemic that has taken 1.7 million lives, an election that confirmed deep divisions in the United States, and the market that feels a little frothy, I can't help but think that the next decade is going to be even better than the last. The markets are eating up technology. I'm even more optimistic today than I was in April and May, because we haven't just accelerated the adoption of tech, we've accelerated the acceleration. 
2020 has been a great year to be a techno-optimist. Interest rates are at all-time lows, the Fed is printing money, investors are looking for yield, and tech businesses have become fundamentally stronger as everything stampeded online. DoorDash is a flashing example. Its contribution margins improved from negative 20% in 2019 to positive 23% in 2020. Every single public company that I've written bullishly on this year is up since I wrote about it, and three have more than doubled. That's luck as much as anything. As of this week, the NASDAQ is up 85.93% from its March lows. In 1999, the go-go days of the tech bubble, it increased by just a hair less, 85.59%. There's never been a better time to write bullish essays on tech companies than from March, when I started doing it, until now. When I made the mistake of tweeting that, that 1999 versus 2020 NASDAQ performance stat, people read it as, quote, this is a bubble, and pointed out that interest rates were much higher in 1999, the dollar is cheaper today, and that stocks aren't actually expensive right now when looking at equity risk premium, or the spread between the risk-free rate and equity yields. I agree. I have no idea what the market will do next year, but I don't think this is a bubble outside of a few names. I'm willing to bet that over the next five to 10 years, owning today's leading tech companies and investing in the next generation will outperform cash or indices. To be bearish would be to underestimate exponential acceleration. The COVID accelerated X trend by five to 10 years thing that everyone says is too static. It undersells what five to 10 years means these days. If you believe Ray Kurzweil, do people still believe Ray Kurzweil? Or ARK Invest's Kathy Wood, it's hard to argue with Kathy Wood, technology improves at accelerating rates. By pulling certain trends like e-commerce, remote, online education, and crypto forward by five to 10 years, COVID actually accelerated growth and productivity exponentially and set a new, higher base off of which even faster accelerating technology will be built. ARC's theses are largely based on rights law, which states that cost decline as more units are produced, which generates more demand, driving costs down further. It's exponential improvement. Tim Urban expresses the same general idea without the formula. He shows this chart that says people kind of extrapolate out on a straight line when really they should be taking exponential growth into account. Kurzweil would and Urban agree. It's much easier for people to think linearly than exponentially, which causes them to undershoot the future. Improvements beget improvements. More units drive down costs. Better technology creates better technology. And more money pouring into tech stocks creates better tech companies. Even after a decade-long bull run, 2020 was somehow tech's best year since 1999. In the short term, that's great for people who own tech stocks. In the medium term, that's great for innovation. Take IPOs as one measure of demand for riskier tech stocks. After a sluggish 2019 for tech IPOs, every member of the 2019 2019 IPO class is up this year. On average, the group is up 247%. That opened the window for a new wave of public companies. It's been a busy year for Mario Gabriel and the S1 Club. Pexip, Vroom, Lemonade, Rackspace, Unity, Snowflake, Palantir, Asana, Airbnb, DoorDash, and Affirm were among 24 venture-backed companies that went public in 2020. Snowflake, Airbnb, and DoorDash blew their underwriters' price targets out of the water. Palantir and Unity thrived in their first months as public companies. On the whole, IPOs are outperforming the S&P 500 by 8x year-to-date. The SPAC window opened too. Last year, if you'd asked the average person on the street what a SPAC was, they'd stare at you blankly. Now, they'd list 10 that they own and ask you to please back away from their Ferrari. While serious people deride SPACs as Robinhood trader catnip, the newly popular financing method serves a purpose. SPACs inject capital into projects previously deemed too risky for the public markets and lowers the cost of capital for innovation. SPACs aren't new. They slowly built up steam prior to 2020. 
from 2010 through 2019, the number of SPACs grew to 27% CAGR from 7 in 2010 to 59 this year. Last year, sorry. But this year, they broke out. In 2020, the number of SPAC IPOs quadrupled. And it's not just the volume. SPACs have come out of the shady backwaters of finance and into the mainstream. Big names like Bill Ackman and Chamath Palihapitiya are leaders among a growing list of reputable SPAC sponsors, and legitimate companies like DraftKings, Virgin Galactic, and Open Door chose to access the public markets via SPAC instead of IPO. Somehow, despite all of this activity, my ideal SPAC target, Jewel, has not been SPAC'd, and PostMarket agrees. That may change. Axios just reported that SoftBank is filing to raise $500 to $600 million via SPAC today to acquire a company that they haven't previously invested in, like Jewel. Shares of all three companies, Virgin, DraftKings, and Opendoor, lifted off since the mergers were announced. DraftKings is leading the pack, a 403% year-to-date, followed by Opendoor at 259%, and Virgin Galactic at 106%. Those companies' success legitimized the SPAC process and opened the floodgates on both supply, new SPACs, and demand, investor dollars. With the floodgates open, a host of companies have joined the party, most notably and controversially, EV companies. Like Virgin Galactic, EV companies like Nikola, Lordstown, Fisker, and Helion are essentially pre-revenue public companies. Nikola may be a downright fraud. And yet, people have dumped money into their shares. Certainly, part of the rationale is that people want to catch the next Tesla early. But I think a big piece of it is that people want these products to exist. We want to travel to space, and we want to drive futuristic cars and trucks without harming the environment. We're willing to put our money where our mouth is. If it feels a little bit bubbly, well, that's how innovation happens. A 2018 paper, Two Centuries of Innovation in Stock Market Bubbles, shows a strong relationship between bubbles and innovation. The paper covers inventions from the steam engine train in 1825 to the smartphone in 2000. Here's how it works. New technologies come to market, people get overexcited and pour money into the companies that commercialize them, the influx of cash accelerates the speed of development and adoption of new technologies, and even when the bubble ends, the companies that commercialize innovation outperform the market. Demand for shares of companies taking risks on new technologies is reflexive. More money creates better technology, which creates more demand for the stock, and so on. Believing in the product and wanting wanting it to exist actually helps bring it into existence. Additionally, big splashy liquidity events and soaring prices pull the next generation of innovation forward, indirectly and directly. Indirectly, they inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to take their shot. So many multi-billion dollar companies have been founded within the past decade that creating the next one seems feasible. Directly, they've created thousands of tech millionaires who want to invest in the next generation of unicorns. They've seen that it's possible and that the outcomes can be huge. If their idiot bosses could do it, some young, hungry genius can definitely do it. As one small proof point, in the past few weeks, a wave of people from recently public tech companies have joined the Not Boring Syndicate and started putting their winnings to work to fund the next generation. This is how Silicon Valley has worked for the past half century, and the model that every new tech ecosystem tries to emulate. Success begets investment, begets success, begets investment. With more than 250 live and announced SPACs and an insatiable demand for IPOs of strong tech companies, there will be exit opportunities galore for companies to create enough traction and buzz. After a decade of increasing time between founding and IPO, I think we'll see that timeline compress. That will only further accelerate the acceleration as new millionaires and billionaires invest in the next generation. It's not just the money, though, that's accelerating innovation. Entrepreneurs can now spin up teams comprised of the right people from around the globe and software that's purpose-built to handle whole non-core functions. Cloud companies. Geography has always been a rate-limiting factor on progress. Now, after 10 months of remote interaction and with a wave of new remote-first collaboration tools coming to market, it no longer will be. That is going to be an absolutely enormous unlock. 
When all is said and done, I believe that historians will look back at the coronavirus pandemic as the greatest catalyst for progress and creativity in human history. Many of the most progress-rich periods in history were brought into existence by small groups of people in random places around the globe, like Edinburgh during the Scottish Enlightenment, Florence during the Renaissance, or Silicon Valley over the past half century. Brian Eno called those flashes of communal genius senius. Throughout history, senius has been limited by whoever happened to live in or can afford to move to a given place in a given time. Pre-COVID, even with billions of people online, we didn't have the tools or norms necessary to capture the ineffable magic of IRL digitally. Now we do. We've lived through a global remote-first dress rehearsal, and while it's been bumpy, it's going to get better. I'm convinced that this next generation of entrepreneurs will create the most fascinating companies that we've ever seen and do it faster than before based on the simple fact that they have more potential inputs in terms of tools and talent than they've ever had before. Take Hopin, for example. The virtual events platform founded in July 2019 is truly remote first. It hires top talent from anywhere in the globe, onboards and manages them in a process built for remote, and organizes work around things that need to get done and creates its own remote first culture building traditions. In the last 13 months, the company has raised $174 million, and it's already worth $2.1 billion. On the 20 VC podcast, founder Johnny Bufferat told Harry Stebbings that the company has been able to scale much faster because it's remote, and that it was easier to start with a clean slate as a remote-first company than to try to adapt an in-person company to online. The new wave of companies being founded today are all starting remote-first. They have a whole new arsenal at their fingertips. To be sure, to take advantage of the opportunity will require that founders be entropy wranglers, bringing new order to the new chaos. Today, companies can hire a developer in India via Pesto, a designer in Sweden, and who they pay via Panther, and a CFO in New York supported by Ramp. They'll work together in a huddle HQ and spin up new office spaces as easily as they open a new Google Doc. They can raise money via Angelus syndicates for public crowdfunding or directly from stakeholders via Fairman's Cafes, or better yet, keep their equity and get paid for their recurring revenue upfront with Pipe. They can use Stripe to handle payments, Twilio to handle messaging, Shopify to set up a storefront, Market to Hire to hire a part-time marketer, Fuse to manage inventory, Barrel to build their digital identity, Main Street to scan for free money. Soon, they might even be able to plug in GPT-3 to write copy or handle low-level tickets. There's some naked plugs for not boring sponsors and portfolio companies here, but these companies are these are the companies that I'm most excited about because they do all the things that businesses shouldn't need to worry about. Cloud companies will be able to focus on building the thing that differentiates them, the thing that their unique combination of talent from around the globe enables them to do differently and better than anyone else. They'll from idea to IPO more quickly and provide capital and guidance to the next generation of entrepreneurs anywhere in the world. At the same time, employment will become more liquid. If software can handle a bunch of the time-consuming grunt work and FaceTime is made obsolete, why not let employees provide their uniquely human input for 10 to 20 hours per week on a permanent basis and for multiple companies? Or just give employees their life back? They'll save an hour per day commuting and hours throughout the day not running to meetings across town or waiting for the conference room. They could spend more time locally with friends, family, and their communities. They might even be able to work on starting their own thing, however small, on the side. The passion economy writ large. When Lee Jin wrote about the passion economy in October 2019, she couldn't have had any idea how prescient she was. With the benefit of six more months in April, I wrote that one path for people laid off from bullshit jobs would be passion economy businesses. COVID has shown that many people the importance of having a skill that they can monetize directly with their followers and audiences. I suspect that we will see a proliferation of one or two person creative businesses like newsletters, podcasts, courses, design, and coaching. We'll also see these business models evolve. Back then, I had no idea that this is what I was going to be doing full-time. I thought, if I were lucky, it could be a side hustle that paid the rent and made me sharper. 
Somehow, eight months later, I'm a full-time newsletter writer doing something that I genuinely love and having more fun than I ever thought I could for something I got paid for. And it's not just me. 2020 has been all about people building something, however small, for themselves. Over the weekend, I teamed up with Pulsar to look at the companies and trends that have generated the most buzz on Twitter this year. Aside from Zoom, the company whose share of conversation have grown the most this year all have one thing in common. They power the passion economy. Teenagers are becoming millionaires on TikTok. Grown-ups get paid to stream themselves playing video games on Twitch. This year, Roblox paid out over $250 million to 345,000 people who created games on their platform. Shopify merchants generated $5.1 billion over Black Friday, Cyber Monday alone. And Etsy lets craftspeople reach a global audience with unique items. Communities are being built on Discord and governed by social money, and my friend Sari just turned a well-organized version of her brain into $30,000 in one day. And on Substack, I get to write to you every week, tell the stories of the company shaping the future, have an ongoing conversation with some of the smartest people I've ever met, and invest in the next generation of companies that will one day IPO, or even SPAC. This trend is just getting started. Creator platforms, when done right, are fantastic businesses. All of the companies in the chart above spread virally as creators on the platform promote their own work. It's $0 customer acquisition cost marketing. And the companies have the results and valuations to back it up. Substack is worth somewhere near $100 million. OnlyFans just raised at a $1.2 billion valuation. Discord just raised at a $7 billion valuation. Roblox and TikTok are preparing to IPO. Etsy and Shopify are public companies with market caps of $24 billion and $142 billion, respectively. Right now, there are hundreds of entrepreneurs building the next wave of creative platforms, opening up more opportunities for people to do their own thing while making a great living. Not boring portfolio company Composer, for example, will one day let anyone start their own mini hedge fund, bringing us full circle. We'll be able to make a living investing in the companies building the next generation of innovative products. The wheel will spin more quickly. As more people build their own audiences, distribution, and products, we'll become even more resilient the next time a crisis hits. Our identities might not be so tied up in our jobs. We'll have a way to pay rent without waiting for the government to agree. We'll have autonomy and control. This is the way the world was heading in early February, but it would have taken a lot longer to get where we are today. Now, after a wild, tragic, scary, inspiring 2020, there's more money supporting innovation than ever before, entirely new ways to build companies, and more opportunity and necessity for people to follow their passions than ever before. So apologies if this whole letter comes off as cheesy, Pollyanna-ish, or naive. That's just how my brain works. I'm unabashedly optimistic. And look at us. We survived 2020. The best is yet to come. Just want to say a big thank you to reading, listening, supporting, sharing, not boring in 2020. I could not be more excited for what 2021 has in store. Can't wait to see you next year and enjoy the holidays.